I am uh, Matt Lancaster. I, I lead uh, uh, software architecture for Accenture uh, for basically our software innovation and cloud native applications work. Um, and in, the, in that vein, we've, we've come up with uh, some really interesting stuff that we're calling Rhythm that we're going to talk to you guys about today. Um, and then I have my colleague Eric here as well. My name is Eric Motazidi. I'm currently leading up the aforementioned Rhythm. So we'll kick it off. Alrighty. So, all right. So what what is what is rhythm, right? What is this uh, what is this magical stuff we're talking about here? So, um, we are taking broadly a serverless architecture, nice overall event-driven architecture. We're injecting um, TensorFlow into lambdas, um, and doing some really interesting stuff with that around location, motion, and intent. So essentially. This is the first and last time I'm going to read off of a slide, but I, but I kind of like the statement of, of, of how we put this. So we're combining observations in context to identify and act upon behavior, right? And really supplement the natural flow of human behavior. And we'll get into a couple of actual business cases and what we're doing, and then actually get into the architecture and all that as well. So um, what is this at a high level, right? So of course, everything's on AWS. Otherwise, we, we, we wouldn't be here, right? Um, so the first step is location. And even though our title says location, I think location is actually, it's, very in, it's a very interesting part of this, but it's, a, it's, it's ultimately a very small part of it. We did do something kind of innovative there, which Eric will, will, will talk to you about on how we're doing it. Um, we're quite a bit more accurate than other, the other indoor positioning systems out there. But we're taking that location information, taking it in, in currently like two second blips, seeing where you're moving, what your, what, your, what your motion is. We're combining that with a bunch of other information in real time in order to uh, determine intent, right? We're doing all of that in those under two second increments so that we can notify other actors or take, take actions and events on your behalf. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into quite a bit more of that. We, we want to provide context and take action for, for interested stakeholders. So what does this actually do? Right? Why, why, why does it have value, what we're doing? Um, and I think that that can be boiled down into these, these three, three areas. Right? We're able to observe behavior. We're able to use um, machine intelligence and sort of the, the correlation of all past actions to determine intent um, and you know, provide context. And when we're talking about uh, observing behavior, um, thank you for the f traditional phone ring back there. Um, we're trying to observe behavior. We're, talking, we're not talking about using traditional beacon solutions, right? At a lot of, in hospitality especially, there's a lot of these beacons all around. And what they, what they actually do is trilaterate your signal, use your device's bandwidth if you have the loyalty application open, and you have to have it open for it to work, right? Take your device's bandwidth, use your processing power, and use you to tell them where you are. Most of the time, they don't actually have any actionable intelligence out of that because once it actually gets to the place it needs to go, you've already moved on you know, 20 seconds later from, from the position you were at. So we're doing something a little differently in how we're, how we're actually getting the, getting the positioning and, and sort of correlating those moments of interaction. We're not using rules engines and, and sort of batches and queues throughout the whole system. All of this is, is stream, streaming-based, event-driven, 
and um, we're, we're taking those actions and correlating everything and moving it in real time, right? And then when we're talking about providing context, we're using that intelligence to actually, actually do that and use non-traditional interfaces most times to actually provide that context to people. So earpieces, other things like that. We don't want people to look at a screen, right? So um, why would we be able to do something like this now? Um, insert shameless plug for AWS here. Um, you know, a lot of the services that we actually have available and are able to use and build a serverless architecture that, that allows us to do this, um, you know, are, are really something that has only come up in the last year or so where we've been able to put this stuff together. So let's start to get a little bit more specific with what it does, and then Eric will take you through the components in the architecture. So um, I'm going to use a hospitality use case, but this is by no means the only thing that we're doing with this, with this kind of stuff. I have, other, I have some clients right now that are, that are interested in this for mine safety, for industrial um, safety, for a lot of different use cases where getting all that information together and providing people context in real time is really important, right? Where, where a human can't keep track of everything that's going on. But in hospitality, um, our, our, our usual use case, right? Before, before we go through this, our usual use case, and I think all of us have experienced this many, many times, right? You're tired, you get off a plane, your plane's probably delayed, just the law of parsimony going on there, right? You, you get into the hotel, you, the doorman might open the door for you and say hi. You walk up to the front desk, the person at the front desk stops playing whatever game they're playing on their phone. They, they look at you like, why the hell are you here? You hand them your, your ID, credit card, they punch some stuff in on a green screen, right? And five minutes later, you eventually go up to your room and your room is pretty cookie cutter, right? It's, the, it's in many ways the, the current hospitality experience because none of those people know who you are. No, nobody, can, nobody can intercede on your behalf. They don't know your preferences, right? So what we're trying to do with Rhythm is a little, is, is a little bit different in that we have an, your, your average business traveler starts walking toward the hotel, maybe just got out of her cab, right? We, 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 she has the loyalty app on her phone, so we know her Bluetooth ID. We can do other, other radio signals, but we're, we're concentrating on Bluetooth for, the, for this right here. Um, we know who she is. We know that she has a loyalty status of platinum. And we know that she has a, she, she's going to check in today because you know, she's, she's got a reservation already. We've looked at those systems. So she's walking toward the front, front door of the hotel. Um, her intent at this point is pretty obvious to us, right? So the system checks her in, sends the, sends the key to her phone. When, when she walks up to the doorman, the doorman gets a, uh, gets a message through his earpiece. He says, hello, Jane, thank you for being a Platinum member. Your key has been sent to your phone. You walk straight up to your room. Your room may or may not have whatever loyalty gift you choose already in it, right? Because we, we know that it's set to the temperature that you want, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of different events that ultimately can be, can be processed here. And Eric's gonna take us through a lot more of the, the sort of complexity of how we're doing this and how we're taking a lot of the null events and making sure that you know, people don't get a million messages when people are walking near them, right? And, and that's one of the most important factors here is, is that the, the null is, the, uh, is the, the default use case for us rather than the actual event itself. And we'll, Eric will shed a lot more light on that. So how does it work? Right, what's actually going on? How are the pieces working? Um, so we have our traveler with the mobile device. They, they, walked, they walked toward the door. Um, that we, we see that they're, we see the, the intent in motion that's happening. 
they're walking toward the door, right? They get uh, rhythm, the rhythm devices, which are devices that we're placing around. Eric will tell you a little bit more about those as well. Um, they find the, they, they basically send, find the, uh, the Bluetooth signature, they, they figure out where the traveler's at, send it to the cloud components. Um, we get all that, that nice correlation happening. Rhythm is identifying the behavior. It goes, grabs data from external systems. And then as she's walking up to the doorman, since, he, since the system now knows that she's checking in that day, it sends a quick audio signal to the doorman with her name and, uh, and loyalty status so that he can give her the proper greeting. He never has to look at a, look at a device. He doesn't break the sort of hospitality rule of, of how, their, how their business works. And it becomes a very natural human interaction, right? So at this point, we're probably sounding like we're, 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 we're selling magic, right? Or possibly a little bit of snake oil. So in order, to, uh, in order to not do that, Eric is going to actually take you through the components, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, sh we'll show how everything actually comes together to work. So basically, the rhythm platform is composed of three distinct areas. There's passive signal sensing, where we take in uh, different radio frequencies, specifically in the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. Currently, specifically, we do Bluetooth Low Energy and then Bluetooth Classic. We have our Rhythm Ephemeral Cloud, which is a mostly serverless infrastructure. We do have some things. We have some GPU instances running that aren't technically uh, serverless, but we do make every effort uh, to, to do everything as serverless as possible. And then everything culminates in what we call natural interactions. So the idea of Rhythm in the beginning was to basically take humans and machines and make them work better together, especially in an employee environment. More often than not, we do this thing where we focus on our customers as opposed to uh, the people that are actually servicing the customers. And when he says we, he means mo most industries that are in, in the service business, right? We, we as in technologists and marketing people. Exactly, That's what... right? We're focusing on the end customer rather than focusing on the employee and empowering the employee, which is, which is what we're trying to flip the script on here. That's right. So by, by taking the focus off the customer, we're able to apply some of the new modern patterns and other ways of working towards that uh, employee. So natural interaction is one of the most important things that we identify. So employees work, in the, especially in the service area, they don't work with UIs. And we say UI, I mean visual UI. More often than not, they have to make things like eye contact, um, can't look at a watch, right? That is a different social connotation. So we do everything as natural as we can. So if the natural interaction is audio, then we'll push everything audio. We'll do bi-directional conversations so that the employee can talk and rhythm will listen and then push audio the other direction as well. If it is a visual UI job, which those do, I mean, I work with a visual UI every day, um, then visual UIs. And we also support uh, API integrations with external systems as well, if you want to do SMS or whatever it might be. Sorry, I had to figure out how to advance the slides. So the rhythm devices themselves are ultra low cost, multi-purpose hardware. Um, there's two main considerations when we started building them. The first consideration is that essentially it had to be ultra low cost, almost throwawayable. So we can build them with commodity components and sell them at retail prices of sub $20, which make them uh, extremely easy to adopt. If they don't work for you, you throw them away. And the solution's purely additive, which means that because it's all running serverlessly on AWS, if you don't like it, you can just get rid of it. It's not part of your infrastructure itself. And, and on, the, on the flip side of that, right, um, when, you, when you look at the, the e economies of scale for a lot of the beacon stuff we were talking about earlier, those are, those are hundred dollar, hundred, several hundred dollar devices in many cases. For the enterprise right? ones. At least. For the enterprise ones. 
it's, very, it's quite expensive, and, and in the, especially in the hospitality business, because since we're using that as our, our main sort of anchor use case here, most of the hotel properties are owned by owner-operators, right? They're not owned by the big brands. The owner-operators have a very razor-thin margin. You ask those folks to spend $20,000, $30,000 on something that may or may not work, um, you'll be lucky if you get out of the room without being tarred and feathered, right? But if you're, if you're giving them something where you can say, look, I can enhance what you're doing right now, and enhance a lot of the sort of human interaction that you have, and what it ends up costing you is a few hundred dollars worth of devices and some, and some AWS compute. So the devices themselves, other than being lower cost, they were built to be ubiquitous. So we have everything from signal sensing on board. We also have bi-directional audio support. So via OTA, over the air, we can alter the firmware on the fly and essentially transform the device and have it take on a different persona in the organization. Currently, we do only audio and then um, obviously signal sniffing, but there's probably, well, there's theoretically no limits, uh, uh, provided they don't require mass amounts of CPU usage. Our passive signal sensing is, is pretty interesting. I think that was one of the first things that sort of set rhythm apart. Um, if any, I don't know how many people here, actually, a raise of hands, how many people here have done a beacon implementation? Okay, good. Huh, decent amount. So, in, in, the, in the traditional beacon manner, right, everything's based on distance. And there's sort of two ways that a beacon can work. It can be proximal, so your distance from that beacon, or via trilateration to an attempt to position someone, where you take three distances, draw three circles, where those circles meet is theoretically where you're at. There's two fundamental problems, as Matt talked to earlier. The very first one is that you're relying on the person's device to do all the processing. So essentially, you... <laughs> Your phone does the processing, it sends the data up to the cloud, and the end result is more likely than not they, you know, they send you a marketing message. So you're basically paying with your battery and your data plan to get marketed to. The second major issue with that is distance works great outdoors. When you get into an indoor environment, when you're relying on a known TX power, which is your transmission power, and a known receipt power of that, uh, that signal itself, if there's any obstruction or anything that would permute that signal, like we have lights and metal all around, they all act as a signal permutation. All the bodies in here will actually cause a drop in that signal through every body it passes in. You can't get a reliable distance. So what we decided to do was take a completely different route and dump all concepts of trilateration and also take the work off of your device. So we sniff in a few hundred times a second all the signals in the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. And we take those signals, we push them up, and then that is actually combined together and using a neural network, it's basically just a recurrent neural network that runs through and understands what things look like in an environment. So we take samplings all over an environment and then take those measurements. We also use a Hall sensor on board each device to detect electromagnetic interference. So as bodies, as lights go on and off, we can actually detect the different uh, variations in the environment that can actually affect positioning to get you down to basically about a meter accurate. Which for, for, uh, for reference, most GPS is about three meters, right? My, my, my morbid story on that is that's why the, uh, the blast radius of drone, of, of, of drone strikes has to be so large because they're, uh, they're positioning you only in a fairly large area, right? So if you think about trying to do uh, a morbid example, right? But to, to, if, you're, if we're talking about positioning people in an interior area, three meters is worthless, right? 
because you're, you're, you need to actually have some amount of accuracy to see whether somebody's actually walking toward the front desk or whether they're walking toward the elevators, or et cetera, et cetera, right? If you, if you get it down to about a meter, that's about the width of my shoulders, right? So that's, that's generally one person. We can probably get it down a little further in f further iterations, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's three times better than what has been done before, which is, which is one of the interesting things here. Yeah, just a disclaimer of all of our use cases, we don't have indoor drone strikes, but. <laughs> 2.0. Yeah, I don't know. So the rhythm ephemeral cloud itself is mostly serverless. So we take, we use lots of kinesis. We, we have an architecture diagram that we'll show a little bit later that goes a little bit further into how we do it. But essentially, everything, if we can, we make serverless. One of our big issues when we started was that anything in the machine learning realm, whether it be TensorFlow or whatever you might be using, tends to typically run on dedicated hardware. So we actually have an open source project, which we'll share with you in a little bit, where we're able to bake TensorFlow and take over the Lambda environment and have that execute ephemerally uh, within Lambda so that we get pure horizontal scaling and uh, um, massive savings and costs over. We still do our uh, training on GPU instances. We haven't found a way to use Lambda for that, but uh, um, outside of that, that's about all we do. Natural interactions is sort of the, the crux. It's what we're trying to do. So the culmination in these, what we call opportunities for interaction, result in the communication from rhythm to whatever that end user might be. And so like I said, we will listen to uh, bi-directional audio so you can talk to it, it will talk back. And uh, uh, Matt kind of talked a little bit earlier about this concept of nothing. Um, which is sort of, when you talk about natural interactions over audio, one of the last things you want is a chatty uh, interaction. It's the easiest way to get an associate to pull the thing out of there and throw it away. So it's one thing to have things pop up on your screen, which is annoying enough. It's another to have them speak into your ear. So we have this concept that we call nothing. And 90% of all of our uh, training information, as we identify these opportunities for interaction, is actually this concept of nothing where we actually find normal interactions or movements of people or populations within a space that indicate that they're just moving and behaving normally. And so we were able to reduce our false positive rates by orders of magnitudes of well over 100 uh, less. So I think, I think we're down from, we were getting, uh, when I originally did it, I set my whole house up. And my fridge, because I didn't really have a check-in desk and it doesn't really exist at my house, my fridge was sort of my opportunity for interaction. And so I was having 100 false positives as I would walk by my fridge that I was going to my fridge, as opposed to I'm walking up to my fridge and then I'm egressing away from my fridge. And so by adding this concept of nothing, I was able to get it down to one false positive and about 200. All right. So when I mentioned earlier that we're, we're a deeply event-driven architecture for this, right, which means that we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of opportunity for extensibility. So API integration into sending things like SMS, if any of the Twilio folks are in the room, shout out. Um, you know, doing more natural interactions with different, different, uh, different interfaces, et cetera, different types of earpieces, different, uh, different UIs, right? Different, different types of things. Or actually uh, integrating into backend systems in the in the actual uh, in the actual business, right? So when I when I talked earlier about being able to, as, as the person was walking up, 
We know that she wants to check in. Why make her go through the, the whole um, you know, ceremony of checking in at a desk when we can just have the machine do it, send it to her phone, because many, many of the hotel properties today are, are installing locks that uh, are opened by a mobile device, right? Or special keys, which you can get printed out and just walk in and grab it, right? So we, we very much took that concept and called into the APIs um, of a lot of those back-end systems, able to do a reservation, able to add, add or subtract loyalty points, things like that, right? So a lot, of, a lot of interesting interactions that can go on and new sensor inputs as well, right? So not just motion and, and position, but also temperature and other things that we can feed into the system to make better and better decisions, right? If, my, if I put in my profile that my I personally like to sleep in a freezer when I'm, when I'm in a hotel room, so, so I like it at about 60, 62, 63 degrees. Um, so, you know, you know give, give, them a, give them a good air conditioning bill, and, uh, and I'd like my room to be like that when I get in there, right? So if I'm walking toward the hotel, why shouldn't, why shouldn't it also, uh, once it's checked me into a room, set the temperature in the room, right? Lots, lots of little stuff like that that can add value. That you, that you really don't think about doing, but you end up wasting a lot of time sort of calibrating and personalizing things that we can, that we can determine your intent and do it for you. One of the largest um, asks we get is existing video networks to include things like different biometric information and things like that that they may be using, including our passive signal sensing. And so, like I said, as, as a point of uh, extensibility, we allow almost any kind of input there's obviously a retraining effort that's required because it's a completely different type of input, but it's certainly supported. So to kind of go into a little bit, this, this is a very limited bit of the architecture, but this is essentially the ingest of how we take a message coming off of all these disparate devices and then essentially combine them together. Um, as those signals are brought in, we actually combine them. We do them in, currently in two-second increments. So we take a, we call it a, I've gotten some goofy feedback about this name, but we call it dead reckoning, which if there's any mariners here, um, is the process of essentially mapping out your location over time in increments. And so our rhythm dead reckoning system will actually take all these disparate signals that are coming off, it could be from 100 devices, we'll put them together, take things like tying MAC addresses together, uh, identifying the strongest RSSIs received, and then integrating the uh, hall information that's coming off the devices live uh, when, we, when we talk about uh, electromagnetic uh, interference. And so we put those together using Kinesis Analytics currently. We put those together and then we actually hand it off to TensorFlow running ephemerally in a Lambda that pulls uh, chunked models. So we do a lot of preening and then isolation with our models to make them small enough that TensorFlow can actually ingest. Currently we're doing about, I think it's, uh, we're doing one gig instances of Lambda. I know you can go up to one and a half. We don't typically need more than that for one location. And uh, then we uh, pass them through and then uh, hand them off to our API services so that they can either do things like communication down to the user or then grab and enrich that data from currently existing, like let's say on-premise uh, systems themselves. Why don't we go back to the, the last one for a second? So I know how to go back. See, uh, there you go. So, because we should probably talk through talk through this in terms of our of our hospitality use case as well. Just how that's how all those pieces that we talked about are actually interacting 
within the, within the context of, of, of walking up to the hotel, et cetera, right? So when you're... As you can see, I get bored with use cases. I just like the technology. <laughs> as, you're, as you're walking toward the hotel, right, the devices pick, pick, your, pick your signal up, locate you within the signal map that's been created and trained, um, sends your signal off in those two-second increments, that goes to the device gateway, it's routed to the sig signal ingest stream where the dead reckoning process is, is happening, as, as Eric mentioned. We, we actually do the signal processing, we drop it off and, and actually combine it, map it, store the model. Um, and then, we, then once we have that, all that information, we can do our sort of correlation activity and orchestration activity where, where we're taking all of the information together, we make the decision, um, get the intent resolution, et cetera, process your, your reservation, process your loyalty information, et cetera. Can you go back one, one slide as well? Of course. So, so just to kind of talk through this, right, because this is, this is not just for this, this hospitality stuff. It's, it's very much an extensible system, right? For all of this, the, the, only, the only real kind of magic pieces that are, that are proprietary are the devices themselves, which are made from relatively commodity hardware, but we did do a little bit of chip design. Um, and the actual code of, of how the positioning's happening, right? Everything lives on native AWS components. So when we're, when we're talking through this, this is a, there's a lot of cool extensible building blocks. So when I was talking about mine safety earlier, right? Just wanna, just wanna talk through that really quickly because I think it's actually a really interesting one, right? Because when we get the image of, of mining in our heads today, right? What do we think of? Think of probably a guy with a pickaxe, Maybe, uh, maybe, some, maybe some automated equipment going through an underground mine full of tunnels and stuff like that, right? For the most part, that's not really how it's done these days, right? You take a, you take a big mountain or a big area, you literally just strip, strip it down bare. There's massive, massive trucks, autonomous vehicles that are six, 60 to 80 tons driving through, the, driving through the location. Those don't have an actual human driver, right? They drive to the location, the ore crusher uh, crushes a bunch of ore, whether this is iron or gold or other things, it's, it's all done pretty much in the same way. Crushes the ore, puts it on the truck, send, sends it over to the ore processing system to actually either crush it or use chemicals to leach out the, the metal, right? And, the, and, and in this whole process, there's lots of people walking around and doing things, right? There's a, there's a huge, I mean, if, if you're, coming around a corner in your pickup truck, right, because you've just, you've just done some maintenance on one piece of equipment and you're, you're going, to, going to your next location and you come around that corner and one of these big autonomous vehicles is, is also, um, is, is basically bisecting you, you're going to lose, right? <laughs> it's not, not going to be pretty. So, and even if it's a self-driving vehicle, it can't see around corners, right? What we're, what we're starting to do there is take, take this information from Rhythm, take, take the different actors in that process, the different components that one person can't generally keep track of, and be able to, to know where the, where the person in the truck is, be able to know where the autonomous vehicle is, and make those decisions on the fly so that we can either stop the vehicle or warn the person that they're, that they're about, to, uh, about to get in a hairy situation. And the other piece to that is, is if there are people without the proper safety equipment on, we can notify, notify that if they're going into restricted areas, right? Where, where one of this whole thing started, it was, it was uh, kind of a sad story where some, somebody walked into to clean, to clean the chemical leaching vats, right? 
took his, uh, took his breathing mask off for just half a second because he's, he's in a really, really hot area. And of course, the chemicals that they're using create, created a, a gas very similar to what, uh, what was used in the First World War, right? And he, uh, he pulled his mask off and ruined his lungs in a few seconds, and that was, that was about it, right? But all along that process, there were opportunities to notify that person or to notify safety personnel that that person was going into an area without the proper equipment. Right, so, so actually taking the information as far as where the vehicles are going, taking information as far as safety goes, all of that can be mapped and done with the same architecture and the same process, right? And the third piece to that would be if there's any equipment that's broken down, we can reroute those autonomous vehicles so, so that we don't get stoppage, right? Because stoppage, when you, when you have something that, that has 100 tons of ore in it, um, is you know a, a, a few hundred thousand dollars, right? It's not a not a small amount of money if you have to reroute something and wait an hour. So there's a lot of a lot of different opportunities and different different ways to use the same technology to um, solve different business problems, right? It's not just the hospitality bit and the mining and the mining piece. We're talking talking about doing this for airlines and and figuring out where uh, catering vehicles are and things like that. So. Same, same architecture, same kind of general process, um, but able to inject intelligence into, into existing human processes. I'm going to jump onto the devices themselves. So the devices themselves, we use an ESP32 processor. We don't use anything ARM-based, and we use a semi-customized kernel that's essentially free RTOS with some modifications. And the uh, ESP32s that we use essentially are extremely low power draw. You have about 240 megahertz worth of horsepower on board and about 512K of RAM, not M but K. Um, we have NeoPixels on board so that we can do uh, RGB um, visual feedback because it's very difficult to know if they're misbehaving, if they're connected to Wi-Fi, things like that, if they're currently sifting the uh, area. And then obviously we have custom uh, lithium poly batteries to drive that. Um, of course, TensorFlow is sort of the heart of everything that we do within Rhythm. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I can even count the number of kernels we have running, but it's an amazing amount of TensorFlow. Um, I won't go too far into what TensorFlow is, but um, we make it all happen with uh, serverless ephemeral, which is, I hope you guys will visit. There's a very small link on there on GitHub, but we open sourced it a couple months back, but it essentially allows you, it's not necessarily TensorFlow specific, but it essentially allows you to build anything in CentOS and then run it in Lambda with about two lines of code. And my, my little art project there, teasing our friends that, that build the serverless framework by putting Mayfly wings on it to show it as ephemeral, right? We need a, we need a better artist. Yeah, the logo's the, uh, in flux. In the, in the engineer. But what's nice about it is, like I said, it, it sort of it allows you to democratize and do a lot of things that you would have had to spin up an entire EC2 instance. You can now just run purely ephemerally in Lambda. Uh, TensorFlow included. We have some tutorials on there that show you how to build a, um, I think we actually have a pre-existing Docker file that allows you to build the entire process out um, in, a, in a couple commands. And then, uh, like I said, two lines of code in the serverless framework and you have uh, TensorFlow running whatever your, uh, your uh, custom CentOS images. And then as, as much as we can, we open source. Um, there's obviously some, some things that are closed source, but we currently have open source serverless ephemeral, and we hope to open source some new uh, libraries here in a few months. And, and likely, likely the hardware OS stuff as well, because once again, it's running on very commodity hardware. So what we're going to do now is uh, actually put a little bit of proof in the pudding. We're not doing a live demo, because we're, n number one, we're not allowed to do that here. 
And number two, um, just the law of demos wouldn't, wouldn't work all that well. So what we're going to do is show you a canned instance of how this might work in an airport, right? And how we might actually do, do, some, do, some, interesting, uh, do some interesting traffic flow analysis and actually make some decisions to improve the process. Let's see if this works. So let's see if we can get the, get the screen up here. It's that one, yeah. Oh, the law of demos. There. No, no, went back to the. I swear I'm following the directions. <laughs> try, try the three again. Ah. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> All right, well, apparently we're not going to show that. Yes, so, apologies. Um, if anybody's actually interested in seeing that, we can show it to them afterward because we're not going to sit up here and make you sit through that. So um, we have a couple more, couple more interesting things to go through as far as the platform, but I think now I, I want to open it up for some, some questions and conversation. So any, uh, any questions? End-to-end -end latency. Uh, our target SLAs are sub two second. So from the minute a, a message goes up, there'll be a response to an earpiece within two seconds if it's a legitimate. We don't have that issue. We do. We do our so with TensorFlow. We actually grab them in batches when we build out. Just like I said, your your uh, your tensors in bulk. And we pass them through 100 at a time, but we do hundreds of those a second. So there's never an opportunity for the Lambda to get cold and be recycled from the runtime. A lot of different things, but no Java. Mostly, As a rule, no Java. Mostly Node.js, so mostly JavaScript. Yeah, I can say with Java. We're, neither of us are big Java guys, so there's a, there's, there's a little bit of Go and a, little, and a lot of, uh, lot of uh, JavaScript. We actually don't. We don't filter it out. We don't filter them out, but through identification, we determine if there is actually any opportunity to interact. So we have to know who they are, for instance, or if it's just a mass scenario. If it's something like, uh, I don't know, uh, you need to call someone else to help out with uh, the line that's forming, we'll use that information. So, so we actually want that information. So, so when, when we initially um, build the signal map of a location, right, because we're, we're really plotting you on a map of, of how all the signals are interacting over time, which is how we're able to position you ac very accurately, we want those signals to come in. But if, you know, in the, in the hospitality example, you might have installed the loyalty app once or something like that, right? And we grab your, we grab your hardware address, and then when, when you actually send a signal, we know who you are ba based on correlating you with your, with your previous information. So we'll process a lot of those signals, and we get the ones that we want and actually p pass them on for further processing. The, re the rest of them are just kind of discarded. So it's a little bit different than that, but um, you can't actually ask hardware for uh, a BLE MAC address, for instance, that on, would get you rejected yeah. from the App Store, but yeah.
So you have two aspects. If you're going to divorce distance right mathematically from the model, you have two main issues. One is density, and the other is the electromagnetic signature of a room. Are your two big, um, two big issues you have in any given space, at least indoors? Hall sensors are specifically designed to essentially get the amount of electromagnetic interference occurring within a space, and then you have the actual power being delivered. We take the perspective of the different devices, because remember they're passive, so they're actually receiving them as opposed to in a beacon scenario where it's happening the other direction. And so by taking that, each one, essentially TensorFlow is trained in understanding how a room looks on the perspective of the devices in the area. They can be on different floors. We take the strongest RSS IDs because that tells you that they are closer or at least less unobstructed or less obstructed. We take that information and the electromagnetic signature as sensed from the agent. We put it together, and then TensorFlow will say that that actually looks like it came from this place in the room. Does that make sense? It's not necessarily not triangulating, but You can't triangulate, because when you triangulate, you deal with angles. You actually, existentially, you have to know where you're at in order to triangulate yourself. Trilaterate is distance. Well, you can't, because the issue is, so for instance, if I have my phone in my pocket, I have three devices, let's say even do beacons, right? Three beacons on the wall. As I move in a circle, as that signal permeates through my body, it will drop off in relation to it. It will make it look like I'm either bouncing around or making a big circle around the room because the distance becomes obstructed. His body next to me, because he's a lot larger than I am, is going to kind of further obstruct it. So this will make it, I didn't mean that, that sounded bad. <laughs> but it's going to make it look that far. And what you have in trilateration is a major, when you get a major drop off, when that distance looks like it decreased, if you need to draw three circles to know where they are, you have two circles that meet and a third that doesn't. You have no position or any method of getting the position other than you could say with a very large margin of error, I'm in the room, which that doesn't do a whole lot of good. So that's why we had to completely divorce distance from a positioning model and then look for a complete other way of doing it. Why don't you go into the other way of doing it? Because I think that's what the bulk, bulk of the question was. That's, a little, that's, a, that's like a four beer conversation. <laughs> so that is, the, the funny thing is, it actually is the density. Per uh, rhythm device, we can sense about 250 individual MAC addresses per second. So if you get greater density than 250, and that's an artificial limitation just with the equipment and the code that we're using. We optimize, we used to be 150, we're increasing. But as you go past, you need greater coverage. And that often means by segmenting the room, so putting more devices on one side and more on the other. And just on the location, we are actually happy to talk through that with people. I just, I just generally follow the Hawking principle of, of uh, presentations, which is every equation that you have, you lose, you lose like half the room. Right? And there's a, lot, there's a lot of math involved there. So we're, we're very, very happy to talk about it afterward and go in great detail. But uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult to do that when we're standing up here. And Especially sit. when you get with unscented Kalman filters and things like that. Yeah. It gets pretty nerdy pretty fast. So. How many devices did you have to manufacture to cost? Uh, That's actually not at bulk. Yeah. It's sub-20 not at bulk. I, I don't know what the real number That's, would be at bulk. So the funny thing is it's actually including his labor cost, right? Yeah. In, in that. So he actually I'm manufactured all of our current devices in his, in, in his garage. And then we did, we did some more at one of our offices in, in, in the Bay Area, right? So it's very expensive people putting these things together right now. 
um, we're going to get a contract manufacturer. Our, our, our whole deal here is not to go sell devices, because I really honestly don't care about that. I care about the, the total solution of, of how we're able to, to solve some of these business cases. And the, the devices being really inexpensive really helps with that, especially for like the hospitality stuff I was talking about. Um, Sometime come 2018. Up, come, come, up, uh, come up here afterwards and let me get your email address and we can talk. <laughs> How much time do we have, just out of curiosity? 20 minutes. We've got plenty of time. Oh, well, let's go to town. Can you, can you speak up just a little bit? It's supervised and unsupervised. So when we start it, it's purely supervised. So we take a, a critical mass of what we know about the room, including how signals move throughout the room. And then over time, as populations move in and out, we further refine it. Yeah, we have, a, we have a system that actually spins its own training back up once our, essentially our models become, the delta becomes high enough that it's different, that'll retrain itself and apply it. The deployment? Well, it runs in just AWS serverless components. So, I mean, those could run in a VPC if you really had to have them. But outside of that, I mean, one of our main design ideas was to make it purely, people, people talk about transformative as being this wonderful thing in an organization. It, transformative is a massive interruption in organization. An additive solution is something that you can put and interop with those current probably nightmare systems that exist within their organization. So we wanted to make a purely additive solution yeah, think, so I that we had to have to, as few hands in your uh, internals as possible. Put, put my consultant hat on for a second. I think that, so we, we very much tried for a strategy of, and succeeded, tried for a strategy of uh, evolutionary rather than revolutionary, right? As Eric said, additive, right? So you know, evolution is, may, may occasionally be a painful process, but revolution tends to involve guillotines, right? So, um, you know, and you have a very high chance of, of, of uh, failure when you're so trying to morbid. change a lot, of, uh, a lot of sort of sacred calves of business processes. When you, when you build things um, as, and sort of augment existing processes, you can, you can often get into this nice learning loop where you end up with the, the end, same end result as if you tried a big transformation effort. Um, but you do it in, in a very incremental fashion. So it's sort of like the boiling the frog thing, right? People, people start to be, have their process augmented, and then a year later, they're suddenly in a completely different process, and they're totally fine with it because you did it in tiny steps. So the gentleman's been waiting for a little while. Yeah. Can you talk more about the intent mapping, how you balance uh, short-term and long-term memory as it relates to the intent So when we talk about intent mapping, um, I'm not sure I would use the word intent as much as it's an opportunity for interaction. I, I only say that because intent has this, like all these other connotations that, especially if you're in marketing, it becomes this recursive argument. But what we do is when we're doing our dead reckoning, right, we take a position, we take another, we take another, we take another, and over the course of six positions, which is about how many we ever uh, do at any one time, we determine sort of a pathway of movement, and then we also take into account all the other movements going on around. And then we have essentially a training system where, like I said, that, that purely supervised part, we actually define where your opportunities for interaction are. So you would say, 
here's my front desk. This is what it looks like when people walk up. This is what it looks like when someone walks away. This is what it looks like when someone walks by. Right, and when you have to balance the have walking up, say, for the first time to the hotel, um, or have been there earlier in the day, right? So how do, you, how do you balance those six positions with knowing, oh, hey, this person's already been here? So, so, that's, so that is, that's actually part of... That's actually part of when we go to fire, like I said, I think it kind of actually goes into his question a little bit as well. When we take all this information in aggregate, we are aware of the past actions. So if we've already checked you in, we won't check you in again, right? But we, those things fire thousands of times a second in a, in a given, and we check to see if, if some, an action's already been taken, taken on that behalf, or if there's actually a better action to take. Just because you're walking with the front desk, we may not say, you know, John Smith is walking up to the front desk. We may say... The, it's part of the magic of, of being able to correlate with all that other data, right? Once you've already checked in, we know that. So if you're, if, you're walking toward, if you're walking toward the front desk and you stop, you're waiting there, you might actually want to interact, right? If you're just walking by, you've already checked in, so you're, you fall into the null case. So it's pulling all that information together. Positioning is just one, big, one crucial piece of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly cheap. It's one of the reasons we go with the serverless route. You're paying it, you know, three hundred thousandth of a cent per lambda execution. We do those in bulk. We don't do one-offs. So we pull that information off of a stream. We may process a hundred to a thousand, depending on what the load currently looks like, and executing off that. It's, it's wildly cheap. No, because th th then you get into the design consideration of, I'm still trying to, I'm stubborn, I'm still trying to make this work. Um, <laughs> you get in the design consideration of you need a lot more horsepower on the devices, and then now you have to have all the devices talking at the same time. So now you're mesh networking the devices, which means you're increasing latency, and you're increasing latency away from the place where the decision's actually made which one of our design considerations, we wanted one hop from the device to a decision to get it under that two-second SLA mark. Go ahead, I can get it first. Um, have you had any issues with the amount of data that you have to send from your devices up to the cloud? <laughs> ready for on? That's a goofy story. We had one issue once, but that's fixed. <laughs> we had an issue where it was literally hitting it every time. It's uh, the device gateway on AWS. It would hit it every time it sniffed an address, and we actually shut down a corporate Wi-Fi four or five times before we figured out our, that was what was doing it. Yeah, it was really bad. So, um, but since then, we actually do things in bulk. We spin them up. We do some memory management to push them up, and we haven't had those problems anymore. We also moved to more binary protocol away from what we were using before. All right, just a couple folks over here. So. So we, we, don't, we don't actually use either of them. But the, the, exa the example is really that, that those don't work, right? If you're positioning with angles, you have lots of margins of error. And as Eric said, if you, if you just basic interference from having something in your pocket, the trail iteration is going to have real problems in an interior space. One of, the, one of the other cool things that we're doing here that we didn't get to show is, is sort of modeling the whole 3D space. And we can, you know, if, if, if you can imagine like in a command center, you can actually see 
folks walking through and you can see the paths and stuff like that. So it's one of the big things we're trying to do with some with a with an airline airport clients is how do we control traffic flow? How do we know how many folks of a certain loyalty status are on a certain plane? If they're in a, if they're in terminal A and they need to go over to terminal D, do we need to delay that plane? Because you know there might be two people on that plane with no status that might miss their connection, but we don't want 15 people with with uh, you know the highest status in this other on this other aircraft that are going there to miss their to miss their mark, right? And there's hundreds of these things going on at once, and no no person in a command center can actually make those decisions. And that's where all the all the machine intelligence coming together to to actually uh, pinpoint actually starts to add real value. If you have three what? Well, there's more than hall. Hall is just one factor. We, we do hall. The hall sensor is important because it helps us do things like you see how there's communication devices in here, things like that. They alter the, they artificially alter the electromagnetic signature. And so when we train on locations, we don't want to just know what the power received from a signal was. We also want to know what's going on in the room. So you can, you can almost imagine as, as, we're, as we're calibrating and, and understanding all of these signals and, and signals over time in a room, we create almost a, a treasure map of locations in the room. And we're telling you where you are by virtue of where you're not and, and how you're interacting with those signals, right? So it's really using the, all of our wonderful electromagnetic interference around us for, for, for a useful purpose as opposed to just noise. Can, can you speak up a little bit? Actually, that, that's a really interesting use case. So one, one, of the, one of the very early use cases that we had with this was, okay, you have the front desk, right? And let's say you have three people start to, start to stop at the front desk, right? So what do you, what do, you do there, right? So, so the, one of the interesting, so what you probably shouldn't do is, is just give the person all three names. Right? It's not going to be super useful. They're going to take the, take the earpiece out and be very frustrated. What you might want to do is say, okay, there's a queue forming. Right? There, are people, there are people waiting there. They're in a line. Let's call for another associate to, man to, manage, the, uh, to manage the situation. And so we do that, and then they can, then they can use sort of the, the human inter interaction itself to, to manage the situation. And also right? let the person behind the counter know that, that someone else is coming. Yes, exactly. So they're, As not, opposed they're not frustrated. To it's also another interesting, it's sort of the UX of audio is the idea of not telling them what to say. I think sometimes when people imagine what it's saying in someone's ear, it's very you know, deliberate. You tell them this. Like the, you know, a lot of people that have worked in the service center, they worked there for 20, 30 years. Like they know they, how to communicate know with people. Say. We just give them context, a name, a status, whatever is actually important in that interaction, then leave it. It away. I mean, one of the most annoying things, and I think we've all been, all been there, right, is so somebody has to sit and look up your information, and then they pass you off to somebody else who also has to sit and look up your information. Right? So if we can just give them that information so, so that they can, they can actually help you, rather than spend 90% of the time looking things up in different systems, it creates a better situation for them because they can help more people, and they're, they're, they're finished with the interaction quicker. And it creates a much better situation for you because you're actually able to get your problem solved quickly as opposed to sitting there waiting and twiddling your thumbs. You also don't get the who are you and what are you doing question, which is what you get every time you enter a hotel. Every, every area, yeah. How, how does that process 
That's the nightmare. <laughs> that one's a nightmare. We have a solution for it. Yeah, we're, we're, um, we have two, two solutions for it, right? So one, um, we're actually building a little robot that, uh, that will actually, and you can imagine eventually a fleet of little robots that, can, that will walk through spaces and actually map it all out, right? The other solution is um, using, so Eric, I'll let you talk about that one because you're, you're a, the backpacks. Right. No, I can go into that. That's part of our robots as well. But um, yeah. well, one thing to, to bear in mind, a space this large and the amount of samples we have to collect to do it right, it, I, would, I would say this space is probably four plus hours to train. So that's why we've, we're looking into actually automating that process, including uh, adding in a Google Cartographer Slam to actually map the location simultaneously. We build 3D views. So I was going to try to demo, but I apparently can't operate this thing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's like <laughs> 40 buttons, and they all just blink. Um, but essentially, uh, we map out the entire uh, space in 3D. So if it's your hotel or your airport, whatever, the entire thing in 3D. And then you can actually see all of the dead reckoning going on within the space live. And then you can also see all the moments of interaction that are occurring through bubbles that pop up where those communications are occurring. So from a managerial perspective, that's probably the more natural way to look at your, your uh, organization. But yes, it does require taking one meter samples. Um, and Rhythm will tell you when it has enough. But and it's, take not, about as, four it's hours not as plus onerous hours. as it sounds, right? You, you really only have to map a location once. And right now, I mean, you can, you can crowdsource it with people, with devices, or you can do the, the, the autonomous um, robot route, or there's, there's some other things that we're working on. But even, even mapping something as large as an airport is something that's doable in a couple of weeks. And then, then you end up getting the, the benefit long term while we're, while we're setting the rest of the stuff up. Right, so there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of opportunity there. That's one of the reasons we, like I said, we, a robot was slam on board. It's anyone's not familiar with slam, it's simultaneous localization and mapping. It essentially allows you to use a LIDAR, an accelerometer, and a gyroscope to move logically through a location and get all of the obstacles in the location as well. And so our bot has all, all those involved. So if there is a fundamental change while it's doing re, you know, updates and training, then there's different scenarios depending on how different that delta is. If it's a fundamental difference, then it's a complete retrain, obviously. But, yeah, but, but there's but logic to handle that. Adding a Christmas tree in the middle of the room is, is probably not that fundamental of a difference, right? Yeah. What will end up happening is that, I mean, it, it's learning on the go as well, right? So if people start avoiding that, that location and you start to see a clear sort of round piece where that Christmas tree is, we, we, will, we will then know that there's a new object in the room that, is, that needs to be placed. Yeah, if they if they fully rearrange a lobby or fully like remodel something, It'd just then, be a retrain. Then, then you have to retrain. Start from scratch. It's not a panacea, but it's pretty good. Oh, I'm sorry. We're... So we do a process. This is a, this was a very weird thing to have to solve. 
because you can't ask the device for the MAC address. And then any device addresses you do get are wrong, because if you're anonymous, it will often uh, send off an obfuscated MAC address that's not actually the one that's listed. So there is this goofy thing that happens if you have a Mac and an iPhone. You'll probably have seen it occur, where you walk into a space, you log into both with your iTunes address, you walk into a space, and then all of a sudden, uh, it's aware that it's there. And so we have this, I don't know how it's really working, we have this theory that it's a metadata exchange that's occurring. And so we modeled our theory on that. And so we actually do a metadata exchange when you enter a place for the first time. And so if you have, let's say, uh, you know, whatever that provider's app, whether it be a hospitality or hotel company, whatever it might be, I don't want to use any names, but uh, it'll actually do a metadata exchange on first entry with a rhythm device that's sniffing, and then the rhythm device will report that up. And at that point, it's done. Yeah. It's still valid with outdoor, but if it's a big outdoor space, you can just use GPS. GPS is very, it's trilateration, it's the same, but it's unobstructed mostly, right, except for clouds. And there's, there's, no, there's no issue with using combinatory uh, signals. Our, our current devices are not waterproof, though. <laughs> and no pools. Yeah, you wouldn't want to put them in a pool <laughs> or in the rain. All righty. Well, oh, we got one more? One more. Um, it really depends on the, on the use case, but it's... Our it's, costs, 95% of our costs are GPU instances. Yeah. That's literally what their ads training comes up. And, and when we say 95%, we mean, if, we mean a couple hundred bucks, right, to, actu to actually train it for the location. It's been a few it's, hundred. Yeah, it's, 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 and, and if you have a very large location, maybe a couple thousand, right? But the, but the hardware and, um, you know, Cloud infrastructure cost is, is infinitesimal compared to setting up big dedicated instances and having licensed software and all that kind of Actually, stuff. Actually, to clarify that, when I said we did model pruning, we also do some compression on the models as well. Um, we don't use mass models like you would normally find in a big AI. A lot of people approach AI in this very monolithic mindset, right? You have this model that does everything, models all the we model specific areas, right? And then on the fly, we'll grab different models to keep them nice and concise. Because of that, our training is only based on a small, concise model, which means we can train. We use GPU instances very fast, and we queue them out so that we just do one model at a time to the next. But we can train an entire location like this with you know, 100,000 points. We can do that in a couple minutes. So it's not necessarily expensive. It's just we run a lot of GPU instances. During the training. Some of it's me screwing around, some of it's, you know, training, but <laughs> we do a lot of GPU stuff, and that's really where the costs come out, because K80s and P100s aren't cheap. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you guys very much. <laughs>